Hi, welcome to episode 647 of the Fantastic Forecast. I'm Dave Elliott, and I'm considering a new podcast co-host, Colin Kaepernick. But first, let's see if he's still got it. On every episode of Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four, starting with issue one and going on and on and on until someone tells me to stop. On this episode, it's Fantastic Four, Volume 6, Number 12, released in July 2019. The Honeymoon Crasher, written by Dan Slott, and art by only one person, Sean Izaksi. The story starts with Reed doing a test of the thing. He says that Ben's annual transformation, transmutation, is right on schedule. Is this the bit from Jonathan Hickman's run where the thing turns into his human form once again, like once a year? Frankly, I'm shocked that Dan Slott knows this. So, Ben's going to change to his human form in 11 hours and 59 minutes. While he's finally on his honeymoon with Alicia. Why didn't they just get married closer to the annual transmutation? It must be like several weeks since the marriage which I assume hasn't been consummated yet. I hope it hasn't been consummated yet. Later on the roof, Ben is packing up the Fantasticar and he's about to head off with Alicia. Alicia asks Val to look after her cats. You know, if something happens to the cats, Valeria can just make clones of them or something, pull other versions of the cats from another dimension. Sue asks Ben to fork over his communicator so he can relax on vacation without worrying about work. So they get in the fantastic car and they take off. Johnny yells out, Don't do anything I wouldn't do. And Ben cracks back, What, like marry a scroll? Johnny looks upset and he says, Hey, that's not funny anymore. It's getting old. But everyone else seems to be laughing. You know, his family are real assholes. So later, at a remote island hidden away in the tropics, well, that description makes it sound like wacky antics are about to ensue. Ben and Alicia are on a dock. Not sure why they're parking the fantastic car on water. That doesn't make any sense. Some guy's helping them with their luggage. There's a couple of hotels in the background on the beach. I see four sailboats in the water. Doesn't seem all that hidden, does it to me. So the guy leads them to their bungalow and tells them to have fun on Coma Co. The guy seems like he's waiting for a tip, so Ben gives him an autographed picture. Well, he's an asshole too. Ben mentions that these pics go for $60 on eBay. But if you live on a remote island in the tropics, the shipping must be a bitch. We see the porter, uh, the bungalow guy, whatever he's called, he pulls out his phone and he tells someone that Ben Grimm has arrived. And then the phone goes out. We see a couple of other people nearby, they've also lost their cell phone signals. Hey, it's almost as if they're on a remote island in the tropics. Oh wait, they are on a remote island in the tropics. Meanwhile, some miles out at sea, we see a lot of splashing. A fishing boat seems to be getting pounded by waves, and then the ship breaks apart and the crew, wearing life jackets, are floating in the water, and one of them says that whatever it was, it seems to be heading toward that island. Later. Ben and Alicia are walking on the beach, and he admits to being kind of nervous about turning back into human form. He mentions having to use sunscreen, and, and he'll have hair again, and his wedding ring won't fit. Yeah, but 
I think I know why he's really nervous. He's got to be able to, you know, perform. And then Alicia gets on one knee and offers up a ring, a human-sized wedding ring for him. And she says that she wants to have a family. And she is so horny. Ben says, Alicia, I love you more than anything. And so they're having a very romantic moment there on the beach. Next, it is nighttime and these big waves and splashes have reached the island. We see a large figure jump up out of the water and land on the beach with a loud broom. Broom? B-W-O-O-O-O-M? Broom? Is that a real sound? People on the beach get knocked over by the shaking ground. And then, out from the smoke emerges the Hulk, who says, Fight me, thing! Okay, leave it to Dan Slott to throw in the Hulk first thing fight in the most random way possible. What possible motivation could the Hulk have for traveling thousands of miles across the ocean just to fight the thing? So, Ben is like, I don't know what your beef is, Banner, but not here, okay? Of course, as soon as Reed mentioned that Ben had 12 hours left before turning human, we knew that someone would show up to fight with only minutes left. And on the next page, Ben looks at his watch, and now he's only got 1 minute and 26 seconds left. Or is that 1 hour and 26 minutes? I don't know. They should make that more clear. I flipped through the rest of this comic. It's, it's 1 hour and 26 minutes. Also, we see the Puppet Master, so that explains the Hulk's motivation. Wasn't Puppet Master okay with the marriage? Or wasn't he in jail? I don't remember. I'm too lazy to look it up. Alicia is worried about innocent people around who might get hurt. Odd, but she's never had that problem back in New York. Ben has no interest in fighting. He says to the Hulk, I got nothing to prove here. You want me to say it? Fine. You're the strongest one there is. There. It's all yours, pal. We good now, or what? Now this is when the Hulk says he's going to kill Ben, and then we see the Puppet Master hard at work manipulating the Hulk with his Hulk puppet made of radioactive clay. It doesn't really look like a puppet, it looks more like an action figure. But I guess Action Figure Master isn't a very good superhero villain, supervillain name. So they start fighting viciously, they attack a they destroy a bungalow with several people inside. You know, you pay thousands of dollars to travel to some remote island in the middle of the Pacific, and suddenly it's like living in midtown Manhattan. What a bitch. One lady says that this one guy might have a concussion. I don't know why that's a big deal. Johnny has had, Johnny's had about a hundred concussions over the years. Ben tells all the civilians to get out of there, except for Ray, the guy who works there. Ben asks him to help his wife get to safety. And then, the Hulk lands on Ben, knocking him down. Hulk says, Hulk smash. Ha, I've always wanted to say that. Huh, Hulk has said that a million times. Is, the puppet ma is that the puppet master talking through Hulk? Because I didn't think that was how it worked. He punches Ben around some more, picks him up, throws him. He crashes into the mountainside, rocks go flying everywhere. Ben thinks that Alicia's been covered in rocks. But isn't that your typical night in bed with Ben Grimm? He hears her call out from under the rocks. Yeah, of course she survived being buried by giant rocks. And then the Hulk jumps in and hits Ben. He complains about being attacked with his back turned. So Ben puts up his mitts and says he's ready for a fight. He says... I got nothing better to do in all the time in the world. All the time in the world? Why is he saying that? Who says he doesn't have all the time in the world? 
Who says that when they're going to fight someone? Okay, I'm ready to fight. I have all the time in the world. Such a nonsense thing for him to say. So the last thing we see is the watch on his wrist, and he's got 52 minutes left before he turns human. Oh, I see. He says he has all the time in the world, but he's only got 52 minutes left. Oh, isn't Dan Slott very, very clever? And that's the end of this story, but not the end of my misery. I mean, the end of the issue. Issue 12, it seemed to be a welcome respite from the adventures of Franklin and Valeria. We get a backup story called Speed of Light by Jeremy Whitley and Will Robson, starring uh, the children from the Future Foundation. In case you were worried about this book not having enough children, we get a shitload here. Terrible, terrible characters, one and all. This is going to be hard because I can't remember most of their names except for Alex Powers and Dragon Man. We start with the Future Foundation near their spaceship. And I don't, rem I don't remember it looking like this. I mean, it kind of looks like an elongated penis. The ship is on an asteroid and the entire group is running toward the ship and away from a group of scary alien creatures. Alex uses his gravity powers to lift up a bunch of rocks and block the aliens behind them. Next, the story shifts back to New York and to Alex's sister, also from Power Pack, Julie Power. And she's not doing so well. She's dropped out of college. She broke up with her girlfriend. You know, heck, I didn't even know she was, you know, in college. Her apartment is a mess. She's on the couch watching TV, stuffing her face, and thinking that she wishes Alex were there to cheer her up. She hears a noise and is like, huh? Back in space, or in alternate dimension, or wherever the Future Foundation is. By the way, that's the name of a company, which is a terrible name for some kind of team. If they ever published a comic book with a stupid name like that, it would be canceled so fast. Dragon Man and the kids are working on a teleporter, and Alex agrees to try it out. They turn it on and crackle. Alex and Dragon Man teleport to Julie's apartment. Once again, pretty huge coincidence that Julie was just thinking about Alex, and then he shows up. They land on a table, which breaks under the weight. They give each other a hug, Julie and Alex that is. Alex says they don't have much time to spare. Their lives are at stake. They need her to come back with them to the other dimension. She wants to change clothes first, but they don't have time, so they teleport back with her in her sweatshirt, shorts, and no shoes. Oh, they should have at least allowed her to grab some shoes. She yells at Alex for a few panels for dragging her there in a hoodie and running shorts, but they explain that they're lost in the caves, being chased by monsters, and they need someone to find the way out. So Julie, being able to fly, you know, with that rainbow-type uh, trail behind her, which seems more appropriate now than it was back in the 80s when she first got her powers. She takes turns flying everyone to safety over the heads of the monsters. So everyone hugs her and they thank her. They invite her to spend the night on the ship. Later, she finds a robe and she goes to have a chat with Alex, who's looking at an old, who's looking at an old picture of Power Pack. So she goes on to reveal to Alex that she dropped out of college and that she's bisexual and she had a girlfriend that she broke up with, she doesn't have a job, and she had to move back in with her parents. She expects a lecture from him, but instead he gives her a hug and tells her that she doesn't deserve this. She ends up saying that she's got nothing to go back to. 
and she'd like to stay with Alex on the ship and join the team. So Julie Power, in only a few pages, has showed far more personality, has a much more interesting story, and is a much more compelling character than anyone else on this godforsaken Future Foundation team. So, screw you, Comicscape. I like Julie Power. So the issue ends by saying, to be continued. In Future Foundation 1? Oh no. I like Julie, but I don't want to read a Future Foundation book. I hope the artist is different because the art in this backup story is pretty awful. So that's the end of issue 12 of the Fantastic Four. Or, as it just occurred to me looking at the logo of this book, the book's title is Fantastic Four 4. There's the word 4 followed by the number 4. It's Fantastic Four 4. On a scale of 1 to 4, I give this issue a, a 2.5. It was okay. What a relief that Franklin and Valeria are barely in this issue. I still think that in the next issue they're going to show up and stop the rampaging Hulk, or find the Puppet Master and stop him, or somehow save the day. Also, so far in the never-ending stream of rotating artists, I like this one, Sean Izaskaki. I like him the best. You know, the one on the main story. The artist on the backup story, not so much. Okay, so now let me look up some reviews of this issue on the internet and see what other people have to say. Kat Kalamina from Newsarama says that overall, the Fantastic Four shows that the franchise has a very promising future. You know, I think the fact that Disney is making the Fantastic Four movie shows that the franchise has a promising future. The comic book, uh, I don't know about that. My favorite rev reviewer, J.A. Fudd of Comic Watch, says, Dan Slott, once again, turns in a good story that leaves you wanting more. The backup feature jacked up the price of this issue by a dollar, and it's a dollar I would rather not have spent for that artwork. I am really anxious to see the outcome of the latest and possibly most fateful battle between the Thing and the Hulk. <laughs> well, he nailed, he nailed it on one thing. That artwork. You know, that artwork is so bad, the book should have cost less, not more. Even though I hardly expect the next issue to have the most fateful battle between the Thing and the Hulk. Why would you think that? Interesting how in his or her review of the last issue, they were excited over the mention of a pride parade. But in this issue's review, doesn't even mention the inclusion of an actual LGBT character. Go figure. So that's the end of the issue. If you have any questions about Power Pack, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download all the episodes at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. <laughs>